During the reign of David, there was a famine for three successive years. So David sought the face of the Lord. The Lord said, It is on account of Saul and his blood-stained house. It is because he put the Gibeonites to death. The king summoned the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not a part of Israel, but were survivors of the Amorites. The Israelites had sworn to spare them, but Saul in his zeal for Israel and Judah had tried to annihilate them. David asked the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? How shall I make atonement so that you will bless the Lord's inheritance? The Gibeonites answered him, We have no right to demand silver or gold from Saul or his family, nor do we have the right to put anyone in Israel to death. What do you want me to do for you? David asked. They answered the king. As for the man who destroyed us and plotted against us, so that we have been decimated and have no place anywhere in Israel, let seven of his male descendants be given to us to be killed and their bodies exposed before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the Lord's chosen one. So the king said, I will give them to you. The king spared Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the oath before the Lord between David and Jonathan, son of Saul. But the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Aiah's daughter, Rizpah, whom she had borne to Saul, together with the five sons of Saul's daughter, Merab, whom she had borne to Adriel, son of Barzillai, the Meholathite. He handed them over to the Gibeonites, who killed them and exposed their bodies on a hill before the Lord. All seven of them fell together. They were put to death during the first days of the harvest, just as the barley harvest was beginning. Rizpah, daughter of Aiyah, took sackcloth and spread it out for herself on a rock. And from the beginning of the harvest till the rain poured down from the heavens on the bodies, she did not let the birds touch them by day or the wild animals by night. And when David was told what Aiyah's daughter Rizpah, Saul's concubine, had done, he went and took the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from the citizens of Jabesh-Gilead. They had stolen their bodies from the public square at Bethshan, where the Philistines had hung them after they struck Saul down on Gilboa. David brought the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan from there, and the bones of those who had been killed and exposed were gathered up. They buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the tomb of Saul's father Kish, at Zelah in Benjamin, and did everything the king commanded. After that, God answered prayer in behalf of the land. Well, our reading from the New Testament is from Romans chapter 5, verses 6 to 11. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this, though, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Thanks, Kathy. Morning, church. Morning, church. Yippee. Hey, I'm glad you're out there. Um, you know, sometimes you, you come to God's word and uh, you've really lifted, and then there's other times you come to God's word and you kind of feel the weight. Today is a weighty day, but it's all God's word. And we've come to that point in 2 Samuel chapter 21, the penultimate of our series. And so we need to engage with this section of the word of God, even though for some of us it will be quite a troubling section talks about uh, injustice, talks about suffering, uh, talks about escalation, and there may be moments in this time together where we sit and reflect on the need to lament the brokenness of this world. Crowns are crumbling. David's kingdom is crumbling, and his poor decisions don't help matters. And I wonder whether um, you might consider with me some of those moments in our own lives where we've sought justice against an injustice. There's plenty of stories, aren't there, of righting wrongs. In fact, a lot of our movies revolve around that. Um, whether you're in the category where you remember a character like Dirty Harry or John Wayne, or perhaps you're a little more up-to-date with the likes of um, Rambo, um, or really up-to-date with the likes of John Wick, but quite often where these characters go in for uh, retribution or righting a wrong, it just seems to escalate, doesn't it? A until, in some instances, the body count becomes huge. And um, there's a difference between righteous wrath and unrighteous wrath. And sometimes these kind of desires within people to right the wrongs can just get bigger and bigger until they become um, crazy. I mean, think about Tom and Jerry. Like, that, that battle's just going on forever, isn't it? Um, I did have a little bit of video footage until I was reminded by one of my team members that I was uh, contravening copyright, so we're not gonna show it, but you can find it online. Um, Itchy and Scratchy, who are characters in The Simpsons, who basically draw a gun on each other, and the guns get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, until eventually they're as big as the world, and then one of them really comes off quite badly. Um, it's this notion of escalation. And you see, this has been going on ever since the beginning ever since the fall. And then that brokenness that we heard about last year of Cain killing his brother Abel. And then the need for protection for Cain, the city of refuge that God developed to protect offenders. And then of course you remember Lamech who said, well if Abel's avenged, how much more will I be avenging? Seven times 77 and you just kind of see this desire for escalation. And God very wisely in his Torah and his word kind of capped it. He said there's going to be a limitation. There are rules of good judgment because I am a good God. 
And so we'll work with the parameters of proportion and discrimination. The Judeo-Christian legal system, in fact, the legal system that we have in our Western world today is based on these principles of not escalating things beyond what's called lex talionis, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But we read a story like this, (coughs) and I guess we've got to be getting some comfort from the fact that that legal system and, and those ways of doing things are based on the fact that God himself says, in the end, I will work everything out. Humanly speaking, in our world, we're going to continue to see injustice, but at the end of the day, the Lord says, it's mine to avenge, it's mine to repay. And when we hear of injustice and suffering, like the story that we, we read in, in, in this chapter about David's situation, when we hear of injustice and suffering today, it's a great comfort to God's people to know that in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, it has all been sorted. And it will all be sorted in the end. I'm going to lead us in prayer because I don't think this is an easy passage. Um, Not just to kind of get to grips with understanding it, but also about the implications of it for us. So let me, with you, ask the Lord to prepare our hearts for what he would have us learn. Let's pray. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father and our righteous, almighty God, King of the universe, we pray that you would prepare us, Father, to hear your words preserved for us in the scriptures, sometimes words to lift and encourage and sometimes words to be realistic and to lament. We thank you, Father, for the way in which we're going to encounter the God of grace in the midst of the brokenness of this world. And we pray, Lord, that as we do indeed see this gory atonement, you would help us to more fully understand the profound nature of the final atonement where the Lord Jesus says, it is finished, and what that means for us as your people today. So we pray, Lord, by the power of your Spirit and through your word, you take us on that journey and shape us and mold us and break us and make us to be more like Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. So um, in terms of uh, where we're going to get to, the, the, the context of this sort of last section of 2 Samuel, chapters 21 to 24, are sometimes described as a bit of an epilogue. They don't kind of follow chronologically from chapter 20, but they're very wonderfully structured in such a way um, that they are, and if I might have the image up please, a chiasm, or like a bow. And so what we see there is that 21 through 24, um, we've got this problem, which is, oh, I just tapped that, sorry Luke. Have we got, is that sorted? Oh, well done mate. Um, that was my microphone. Uh, God's wrath, and then we're going to see again uh, a problem in relation to God's wrath at the end. And so this little picture here I got from John Woodhouse in his commentary. Um, it's a lovely little chiasm. Uh, both these stories kind of deal with the problem of um, unrighteous human wrath being poorly expressed and God's righteous wrath being rightly expressed. In other words, when people get it wrong, God always gets it right. And the big idea for this talk is crumbling crowns commend Christ. So in other words, we're going to witness the crowns on the heads of God's people, God's appointed and anointed kings and leaders, but those crowns just eventually crumble because none of them is perfect. 
But through the lens of seeing those crumbling crowns, we also see the perfect person of God's Son and Savior, Jesus, who wears the crown for all eternity and is commended by contrast. And three points, crowns, first half of this Samuel reading, crumbling, second half, and then Christ, Romans 5, the reading that we had from Kathy. So firstly, crowns. And the crown of David is indeed crumbling. The dynasty of David is crumbling. 2 Samuel 21. We have this story here, and it is difficult. It's only a handful of people involved, but you can see already the impact of the story on the family and friends of those people involved. There is suffering. There is grief. And there is injustice. And for some of our family and friends, when it comes to suffering and injustice in the world, um, a good question to be asking is, where is God? Where is God? Some of our family and friends may simply say, there is no God. In fact, in the words of Richard Dawkins, who was the guy, a scientist, biologist, when I was at university first time round and did my biology degree, he was kind of our touchstone and our main textbook, selfish gene, standard phenotype, all that kind of stuff. So he's, he's a real, real biologist. And he, in fact, he's over here in Australia at the moment saying a lot of controversial things. But here he is, a quote here from River Out of Eden, a Darwinian view of life. Richard Dawkins says this, in a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. I mean, there's the good atheistic summary, isn't there? But then there are other folks who say, well, no, I think there could be a God, but why is it that he just doesn't deal with suffering? Is he not loving? Or maybe he's just not strong enough? And that's sometimes perhaps where our minds have gone and the minds of our friends and families go. Or do we see that actually God is in control and is loving? Well, I hope some of these threads will come out as we look. Let's go together. Verse 1, chapter 21, during the reign of David, there was a famine for three successive years. Let's not get our minds out of joint here. Famines are real. I know that we don't really experience that sort of thing in Australia, although a couple of years ago we did have a famine of toilet paper. But, but we do get fires, don't we? And we get floods. We get real-life stuff that demolishes people's homes and put lives at risk. And elsewhere in the world, a famine is where bellies are empty and mothers are desperate and children are wailing because they have no food. And this famine is real. Three successive years of famine amongst the people of God, and David wisely sought the face of the Lord. He prays. In essence, why, Lord, is this famine here? And very wonderfully, the Lord gives him insight. We don't know how, prophet or word or whatever, but simply the Lord said, it is on account of Saul and his blood-stained house. It is because he put the Gibeonites 
to death. There's the reason for the famine. God has a long memory. God will do right by people. All the way back in Joshua 9, we read about how the Gibeonites, who were a tricksy bunch, managed to secure a deal with God's people through Joshua to ensure that they would never be attacked or annihilated by the people of God. And that was a deal. It was a covenant. It was a handshake. We will never hurt the Gibeonites. And we're told at some point here, although we don't have the record in the rest of Samuel, that Saul chose to attack the Gibeonites and kill a bunch of them off. That's the reason there's a flood, uh, a flood, a famine. God is fair. It's a fair famine. At some point in Israel's history, Saul had got it wrong. We think, don't we, of course, by comparison about what happened with the Amalekites with Saul. You know, when Samuel came along and he was supposed to kill all the Amalekites and, and uh, Samuel comes in and there's that meh. What's this bleating in my ears? Of course, Saul didn't do what he was told at this point, but he went against the promise that his predecessor had made in Joshua to do the wrong thing, and God sees it, and there is blood guilt because they had protection. The king summoned the Gibeonites and spoke to them. And then we see the beginnings of a deal. Now, unlike what David had done previously, where he prayed to God and asked God what the reason for the famine was. He does not pray to God. He says to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? Can we see the beginnings of a problem here? The Gibeonites are not Israelites. It's quite probable that they do not worship Yahweh, the God who is good. How shall I make atonement, David says to the Gibeonites, immediately abdicating his role as the king of Israel, so that you will bless the Lord's inheritance? The Gibeonites answered him, well, we can't demand recompense, and and as non-Israelites, we don't have the right to ask to put anybody to death. And you can see where this is going, isn't it? This is not a healthy dynamic in terms of deal brokering. And, And David then goes back to them again and says, what do you want me to do for you? It's an accident waiting to happen. He has not prayed to God. He has not sought God's ways. Instead, he's asking the Gibeonites to determine terms of the deal. And they answered the king, as for the man who destroyed us and plotted against us so that we've been decimated, let seven of his male descendants or his sons be killed and their bodies exposed before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the Lord's chosen one. Let's just take a moment to step back from this. What are the Gibeonites saying? They're basically following the practices of the nations. Kill off the kids. Give the kids as a sacrifice to appease the gods. This is not the way of Yahweh. This is a horrendous thing to do. The atonement for the atrocities that Saul committed against them requires blood, and their design is to say that seven sons of Saul are to be made an example before the Lord, and then they throw in that little the Lord's chosen one, which I think is is a bit of a snipe. None of this is the Lord's solution. It's a man-made solution, and we sort of stand there going, David, don't do it, but what does he do? He says, I will give them to you. And in doing so, actually, for your homework, have a look at 1 Samuel 24 and see how David there is breaking a promise he made to Saul about protection for his sons. So in summary... The famine is fair. 
but the deal is disturbing. And the expectation here is that something is going to be really unpleasant. God was not behind this, let me say. This was not God's deal. This was David's deal. And in the crumbling of his crown and authority, we see the stark contrast between David's actions and the way of God, who is the God of grace and the God of chesed, loving kindness, and the God who shows mercy to a thousand generations. And so sadly, the sins of the fathers are going to be meted out on the sons because of David's willingness to capitulate. And we see crumbling going on, the crown of David crumbling, but there is hope, and this cloud does have a silver lining. Firstly, the king did uh, spare Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the oath he made before the Lord. Well, he remembers this promise, and he has protection on Mephibosheth. He's shown kindness to Mephibosheth, but this is only a brief relief from this horrible deal, this disturbing deal, because then we see that the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Rizpah, whom she'd born to Saul, Saul's concubine, Rizpah, 2 Samuel 3, 7. Jonathan's half-brothers. David does this horrible deal. Just imagine with me for a moment, maybe David or maybe a delegate of David going up to Rizpah's door. Knock, knock. Are your sons in? Mephibosheth, different Mephibosheth. Armoni, we're going to need your sons. Harrowing. And then five sons of Saul's daughter, Merab, whom she born to Adriel, son of Barzillai, the Maholathite. There's a little inclusion of Michal in that uh, slide, um, just because some of the versions have Michal in there. And that's a whole confusing story, but I'll let you have a look at that if you're interested another day. I think this is a different daughter to Michal. But here we go, five grandsons of Saul and another Barzillai, by the way. Isn't it funny? How like Mephibosheth and Barzillai, there's two of each of them. I mean, it's rather like having sort of James and John by today's uh, standards, but they do seem very unusual names for us. Anyway, he handed them over to the Gibeonites, and what did they do? They killed them, exposed their bodies on a hill before the Lord. All seven of them fell together, and they were put to death during the first days of the harvest. David handed over these sons to the Gibeonites, Seven sons killed on the mountain before the Lord fell together in the first days of the harvest. It's a brutal killing, and you can imagine how the families and friends would have been devastated by this disturbing deal. And just to amplify the horrific nature of this, we see the loving mother. Now this really is awful. Rizpah, daughter of Ai, took sackcloth, spread it out for herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until the rain poured down, which would have been two or three months. And she protected the bodies of her boys from the carrion feeders and from the elements. This mum watching the decomposition of the bodies of her precious ones. This is a hellish experience. And our response to this, such a poignant, pathetic story, can be none other than just to sometimes sit in the awfulness of this and lament and grieve. Suffering 
and in humanity. It is not a pleasant picture. In fact, it is such a moving picture, such a moving thing, that David, when he was told about Rizpah and what she had done, was moved to see a perspective that he perhaps had not seen before to go and intervene and to take these bodies and to give them a proper burial. The blood guilt that was legitimate in God's sight had through David's delegation and abdication become a blood lust. David now moved in some way to see that he needs to do something proper. And in fact, he goes and he picks up the bones, quite possibly the ashes, as we see at the end of Samuel, of Saul and Jonathan, and he gives them proper acknowledgement to honor Saul and Jonathan and these seven sons of Saul with burial. And they buried the bones at Zelah and Benjamin and did everything the king had commanded. And it was after that that God answered prayer on behalf of the land. There is a setting right that is required in God's line of sight because he is always faithful to his promises. But it doesn't require this macabre murder. And it is when dignity is restored in a proper way that God shows his loving kindness and relents such that men and women and children have their bellies full again. Now in summary, what we've seen is we've seen the killings and we've seen the salvage. And I reiterate, it was not God's requirement that the seven sons of Saul be killed. David made a poor judgment. He made a poor discrimination. But when he finally does act honorably for Saul and Jonathan and the sons, God relents in his righteous wrath at the end of the famine because God is righteous. God is righteous. And when someone sins, someone else always suffers. There's always the down-the-line consequences of any sin, whether it's Saul or David, And as you well know, when you have sinned and seen its impact on others, and when others have sinned against you and seen its impact on you, there are always consequences for sin. And always there's a consequence in the relationship between God and his people. God decided to relent in his righteous wrath and end the famine. And this reminds us as people, even anointed kings, cannot deal with God. Crumbling crowns compare and contrast and commend only Christ. See, God is not for sin. He is against sin. And he is righteous in this way because he is perfect and glorious. He lives in unapproachable light and every one of us sins A little earlier in Romans 3, we read verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so it is that the wrath of God against our sin is justified. The wages we read a little later in chapter 6, for sin is death. The righteous wrath of God is fair. Just take a moment with me to consider the sins 
in your own life. Those moments where we have rebelled against a righteous God. Those moments where we have taken things into our own hands without consulting him and we've seen the, the through flow of brokenness in our thoughts and our actions, in our motivations. Every one of us needs atonement from our sins. But the wonderful news is this, it is available in Jesus Christ. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ, the Son of God, died for the ungodly. God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus Christ, Son of God, Yeshua Messiah, died on a cross for powerless sinners. We were ungodly, not righteous before God, but God demonstrates his love that whilst we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He has made the final and full atonement for all sins, for all time, to make those of us who trust in him right with God. He is the descendant of David as promised in 2 Samuel 7 and his death for sinners deals with the problem of sin in us. And even more than this, since we've now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? There is a day in which the wrath of God will be fully and finally meted out against the sins of the world when the Lord Jesus returns in judgment. But brothers and sisters, by God's grace, you and I right now are covered by the blood of the Lord Jesus. You know, occasionally in Australia it does rain, doesn't it? And when we go out in the rain, what do we put up? An umbrella. And if I might respectfully say that Jesus is our umbrella. For just as our sins deserve the wrath of God to be rained upon us, Jesus says, put your faith in your brolly, your Jesus brolly, because I will cover you from the wrath of God. You don't deserve it, but you will get it. Trust me. But what does that require to happen? What does that require? Because our sins, don't they deserve the righteous wrath of God? Jesus says, yes. And I took it for you on the cross in your place. It didn't just go nowhere. It fell on Jesus, God's wrath upon him. No wrath for us and our sins, but the wrath of God poured out upon Jesus. Now, how does that work? Because that's not right, is it? That's not justice, because Jesus never sinned. Jesus was perfect. In fact, he's the only one in history who did not deserve the wrath of God. And yet he did, and he could, because he is the Son of God. Jesus, Son of God, receives the wrath of his Father in heaven because he is God. He's able to take it and wear it, and in that perfect moment of injustice, we go free. Brothers and sisters, in summary, crumbling crowns commend Christ. You and I are broken. We crumble too, don't we? We want justice and we want vengeance and we want escalation, but only if it's for somebody else who's sinned against us or our loved ones, because we certainly don't like the idea of justice and vengeance and escalation for ourselves. We love a fair go for everyone, don't we? But so long as it doesn't get in the way of my fair go, 
But Jesus goes so much further. He says, not only are we going to avoid this principle of escalation, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, he says to those who would follow him, who are now secure in his love and have the assurance of sins forgiven and the assurance of salvation into eternity, he says, you can now turn the other cheek because he promises, brothers and sisters, it is mine to avenge. And when we hear of injustice and when we hear of suffering, we are free to love and to live sacrificially, to wear the pain of injustice, the hope of seasons of grief, because our crumbling crowns commend Christ. What might be some ways in which we can commend Christ this week? This may seem like a small thing, but it's been on my mind to share with you. It's a big thing, really. God keeps his promises, doesn't he? All the time. And I know that you might be a bit like me, where I find myself bending with my promises. Sometimes I can think to myself, well, it's only a little white lie. (laughs) Do you ever find that? Or maybe sometimes I think to myself, well... This is the way that people in the world seem to do it and they're encouraging me to do it like that and it doesn't seem like too bad a thing to do. Maybe I'll just bend a little bit on this. Or maybe sometimes I just completely forget that I made a promise over here and then I do something over here that contradicts that and then when it comes to mind, I just go, that's okay, isn't it? God's sovereign. (laughs) Rather than dealing with my broken word. Or in another domain, Maybe it's the practice of confessing our sins before God, particularly as we come to share the Lord's Supper together, where the Apostle Paul says, let us get reconciled with one another before we share in the common cup. Confessing sins to God and confessing our sins to one another. Maybe it's a matter of recognizing that we've been so heavily invested in the world and the things that will not endure that we lose sight at times of God's eternal plan. And maybe today this is a point at which we can say, Lord, I want to give back to you in the overflow of your generosity to me and to mine, to give back to gospel work that will see other people come to know the fullness of the love of the Lord Jesus.